Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're taking a look at the week's local news with John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and Mission Hill Gazette, Peter Katzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniels, senior reporter of the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, hey, great to be here. Okay, John, I got to start with you because we talked a little bit a couple few weeks ago about this the green development and uh, how everybody was all happy about it, but now. Uh, according to your paper, you've had to editorialize it. It might be threatened. Yeah, well, hmm. this is in uh, Mission Hill. The city has a large uh, parcel of land that has been sitting there for, oh gosh, 20 years or more now. Uh, and uh, community gardeners basically took it over, put some gardens there, put a park there that they call the Art Park. Uh, some mass art students put some art in there and so on and so forth. It's a nice little neighborhood asset. Uh, now the city wants to do what it calls green housing development there. It has a pilot program that it's been working on to do uh, high energy efficiency, new housing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, this raises the question of what's going to happen to the green space there and uh, the actual community gardens and art park. Uh, pretty clear that it's going to at best be shrunken down, relocated, uh, and then there's questions of access once it becomes somebody's lawn, essentially. Uh, so there's a, a bit of neighborhood dispute about uh, what uh, what green means. Yeah, what green development green is. Interest. I think there's also questions about whether uh, uh, people who have occupied that land um, uh, may have some ownership rights, but uh, uh, nobody has actually raised that except me. So we'll see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if anybody else does. Wow, I mean that this really is a, a a competing green interest story, which is really quite fascinating. So mm -hmm. you have that. Uh, community garden, which has engaged so many people in the community and been wonderful for folks, and right at the heart of the locavore movement here, Peter, and and, and now we're talking about, you know, having some housing, which is always needed, mm -hmm. uh, and having it be green, which is important and forward thinking. It's a tough one. Yeah, isn't that land, though, John? Wasn't that um, abandoned? Weren't there houses that burnt down on that land? Supposedly, or? apparently, uh, people are struggling to find the history of it. Even the city is. But yeah, that is the word that there used to be. Uh, certainly, this is between Parker Street and Terrace Street in Mission yeah, Hill, that, and on the Parker the, Street frontage, it's pretty clear there used to be housing there. And in, in, I'm just saying that I, I I'm willing to bet that there's parcels like this all over the city that have you know, were originally earmarked for housing or housing once stood and that that the green use, if if you will, popped up as an interim use. Now that doesn't make it any um, any less, pardon the word, useful. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it certainly means that people have ties to it. But it's a it, it's it sounds like a tricky situation. Um, uh, it, I meant to, uh, is the BRA building on this or is this? It's uh, both the Boston Redevelopment Authority and the city uh, Department of Neighborhood Development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah mm. I, it, it's, uh, I, I remember I, I covered this area many years ago when I worked for the, the Mission Hill Gazette. And I also played in the softball league. I used to walk through those, uh, those lots just to get up uh, there. And, and, and nobody wanted them back then. And and, now here and then the gardens yeah. claimed them, and now someone else wants them. It's right, like Peter said, these are all over Boston, and you could, you could argue about those all a lot. Well, and I think one th one thing that is interesting is we have such successful community gardens in Boston, yeah. thanks mm -hmm. to the Boston Natural Areas Network. A lot of them are where housing used to be, including one right next door to where, where I live in JP. Uh, you know, triple decker burned down. Uh, now it's in nonprofit ownership and is a successful community garden. They are neighborhood assets, and uh, uh, it's a real competing interest. Mm. It might be interesting to see whether how this, the power of neighborhood organizations, because if uh, you know, see where they fall in terms of either one of these projects. Well, moving on, Peter Katz says you have a big piece in the Phoenix about the upcoming AIDS walk, and we have a lot of walks in Boston, <laughs> as people know. But uh, this one, by the editorial uh, board of of uh, the Phoenix is making the point that it's really, really important this year. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, the, the AIDS Action of Massachusetts is the oldest AIDS group in New England. I think the second oldest in the United States after uh, the group Larry Kramer founded in New York. And it's done wonderful work. I mean, since 1999, it's reduced infections by, I think, 54%. That's, that's saved 
taxpayers $2 billion in health care costs. Now, this is about more than dollars and cents. This is about the quality of life and about life itself. But um, we all know these are tough economic times, and um, the federal government, thanks to our friends, the right-wing Republicans, have cut— Send the uh, email to Peter. Continue. (laughs) Um, The right-wing Republican nuts have, you know, slashed um, funding for— AIDS-related things by 25%. The state of Massachusetts has also knocked off about a million dollars a year for the last five years. So, simply put, AIDS action needs money to keep going. And one of the the simplest, easiest, and best things people could do would be to participate in the June 3rd walk, um, which leaves from the hat shell at at the uh, Esplanade. And if you can't walk, Contribute to someone who is, and if you can't, don't know anyone walking, you can always send money directly to AIDS Action. Um, uh, one note: uh, by your characterization, that means the Democrats cut the budget in the in the state of Massachusetts. Well, but that, uh, just that, saying. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just saying. Uh, uh, by uh, five million dollars, I think this is an issue of people just thinking this is over. Um, totally. Once again, Very and I, I, you know, these cases keep popping up, and people are kind of surprised. I think mm-hmm. to see, and it well, it has become in if you're you know in a well-to-do country, it's become a a, a disease you can uh, or a syndrome you can live with for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. But that's let's let's work to stamp it out. Strikes yeah. me as a much better idea, and and yeah, it's it's uh, it is something we hear far more about as something uh, you know now in Africa than than here. But uh, right, and, and and one of the important things, one of the things I failed to mention is um, prevention and education are really important. The best thing of all is yes, it would be best to stamp it out, but that's a research question. But what you can do is you could curtail and you can prevent people from. From getting and it. as you've said, that that saves money in the end. Yes. But, you know. All right. So moving on, Seth. This is important. We're looking at earthquake survivors, um, mm-hmm. and you're looking at it through the lens of uh, your immig- a large immigrant community, mm-hmm. and that's something that we forget. How many people came over yeah. and resettled here after the uh, Haiti earthquake? Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our communities, Everett, Revere, Chelsea, have uh, huge Haitian populations and existing well before the earthquake uh, with big connections to Haiti, you know, going back and forth a lot. They had a lot of relatives. Um, but when the earthquake happened, it was, of course, so devastating. People were just um, on the run, and, and a lot of people uh, came right uh, to their relatives in Revere, in Everett. And, um, you know, what a transition, you know, no language immediately, you know, uprooted, like, you know, within a, a week for some of them. And, uh, you know, the hardest toll, uh, I mean, it was hard for all of them, definitely, I observed that, but especially for the kids, um, you know, who had plans and, and, and stuff, uh, who were going to, you know, schools in Haiti, and they were just uprooted and moved uh, to someone else's house uh, in a place where they didn't understand the language uh, and new culture, all kinds of different people. Um, and and it, it was very hard for them, and plus the, the trauma of what they had been through and seeing the death. And I, I interviewed some about a year ago, and, and they were still scared to go in buildings, especially the school building. Um, they were afraid the ceiling would fall on them. They had a lot of anxiety about that, things we wouldn't think about. Um, the, the heater, when it came on, the, you know, the big furnace, boom, you know, in, in the winter, was, uh, was just a, a real source of uh, trauma for one young lady who spoke to me because it kind of shook the house. She'd wake up ready to run. Mm, yeah. um, but the silver lining is that now it's been about two years, a little over two years since many of them arrived. They've assimilated. This is the first group that's really kind of assimilated into the educational system and the culture, keeping their own culture, but also picking up um, the language and the American culture. And, and, and they're headed off to college now. They've excelled. Um, a number of them in Revere have, have gone on in two years to learn the language and become honor students. AP classes, which is advanced placement college classes. Uh, I just uh, spoke with a young lady yesterday who's going to Boston College on a full-ride scholarship, and she only arrived in March 2010, and she couldn't even carry on a conversation in English. Uh, spoke better Spanish than It's amazing. Yeah, it yeah. is, and, and they've, they've really thrived and, and, and trauma. And, and I know that um, uh, one, one young man came, and he was living with distant relatives. I mean, he didn't even know them. Um, but his father sent them there, and you know his father and and mother were never able to come. Um, he's still in school and still living with distant relatives. And 
you know, they've adapted so well, people forget about what they've been through. Um, but they're, they're finding such success. It's, it is remarkable. And, and uh, I should note uh, that the reason that uh, your paper would pay attention to this is that mm-hmm. uh, their Boston area has the third highest, yes. uh, largest group, rather, of, of uh, Haitians, American Haitians at this point, sure. uh, yeah. Yeah, population in the yeah. United States. So oh, yeah, it's this big. This is a place that's huge. Yeah, Everett, <laughs> Everett is a very large population of Haitians for many years. I mean, their, their kids are some of the best players on the football team, frankly, and Revere is the same way. Um, that whole area they've migrated to, they've kind of um, Malden too as well. With all the free time you have, of yes. course, yeah. there's a book in here or something. I mean, a this book? is a great American story, yeah. I mm-hmm. think. It's a re- remarkable, remarkable story. No, and, and, and at the time when there is a lot of anti-immigrant feeling, mm-hmm. by and large, this is a group of refugees who have been welcomed and accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know how tough it was. We wanted to do a, a piece here on the show, um, and you know, there weren't people at the time that could speak English. So mm-hmm. just to see how they've come so far in two years is amazing. Yeah. All right, we've got much more. We're looking at local news with John Roosh, Peter Katzis, and Seth Daniel. A lot of news that went under the radar this week. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Skinner Auctioneers and Appraisers presenting their auction of science, technology, and clocks Saturday, June 2nd at their Marlboro Gallery featuring an English fossil collection and prominent watch and clock collections. SkinnerInc.com and Bank of America. We know WGBH is important to our customers. Bob Gallery, Massachusetts President, Bank of America. Our commitment to Boston is as strong now as it's ever been, and our commitment to WGBH is as strong now as it's ever been, and I think that matters to our clients and to our associates, and we look forward to working with WGBH for many years to come. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. This is this American Life, a Guatemalan soldier laid low for 15 years till word spread that he had something that he wanted to confess. So somebody came to his home to listen. He told me it's hurting me so much. What I have right here in my heart, I cannot stand it anymore. He'd been part of a massacre. No one had ever come forward. What happens when he did? This week. Tomorrow morning at 11, here on 89.7. WGBH. Hi, my name is Maya, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like Maya break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans means fewer fundraisers. And that's why Maya is responsible for this hour of programming coming to you fundraiser free. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, you too. Join Maya by supporting 89.7 as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. Great question. That is a great question. And that's a great question. It's a great question. What a great question. On Fresh Air, you'll hear unexpected questions and unexpected answers. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking local news. Joining me to talk between the headlines are John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette and the Mission Hill Gazette, Peter Katzis, executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniels, senior reporter of the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal. So uh, continuing the immigrant theme for just a second, uh, John, you guys had a lot of Dominican presidential candidates coming to JP. <laughs> yeah, now, I, that's going to sound fanciful, but I have to note that <laughs> when the Sudanese election came up, a lot of Sudanese candidates came over here. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, can the, you imagine Obama yeah. and Romney like going out and campaigning and to, to Americans in Germany or something? Yeah. would be <laughs> amazing that this is what's happening in JP, that uh, the, uh, the two Dominican presidential candidates were out here apparently campaigning it was, uh, or at least, you know, stopping by to say hello. And, uh, you know, there's such a large uh, Dominican immigrant population here, and uh, they still vote. They voted in Jamaica Plain at one of the elementary schools. We had a polling place. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, 
uh, high voter participation, high voter interest, uh, you know, democracy means a lot uh, to people in that country. So. Well, two things I misspoke. I meant the Haitian candidates came yeah. over here to mm-hmm. to to, to mm-hmm. uh, connect with the Haitian population that we've just said was huge here in the Boston area. Sixty five percent turnout in the Dominican for voters in this country. What that, that makes us look like what <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's. Uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's inspiring. Maybe it should inspire all of us. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This is a huge, uh, um, you know. Again, I mean, uh, I don't know where we rank, but uh, but Boston is a is a huge center of Dominican immigration, and mm-hmm. it's a, a major voting block for that country. So here's a question, John. Um, so if you're American and you're, how do you how are you managing to vote in Dominican? You just must have a dual citizenship. Yeah, you have to yeah. Have the citizenship. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, very good. Yeah, we actually had someone in Chelsea uh, who ran for president of the Dominican Republic a few years oh, back. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, he wrote, wow. a, he wrote a book. He was a real estate agent in Chelsea. He ran, he came in, he announced his candidacy in the Chelsea Record paper, and uh, he, he went around town, and then he went to the Dominican Republic and spent a lot of time there. Um, he, I don't think he was elected. I know he wasn't, but and I don't know where he I finished. I think we would have heard about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he did. He ran, and he ran wow. wholeheartedly. <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, speaking of politics of a different sort, uh, Peter Katz just got a huge piece by David Bernstein in the Phoenix about uh, the Netroots Nation Conference, which is going to be in Providence right in our back door yeah. uh, this year. In the past, this gathering has gathered a fair amount of attention, but... Uh, David Bernstein is asking the question of can it make a difference in November? Well, it's a good question. You know, for, for people who aren't familiar with them, um, you you probably are. You just might not recognize the name. Netroots, Netroots is the group, uh, sort of a loose association of progressive bloggers that was founded about six years ago. And uh, some of the blogs that are members of, for example, a Daily Kos, uh, Talking Points Memo, TPM, people who were active on um, Twitter would recognize those two as well as just being active on the internet. And these are uh, ideologically uh, driven bloggers who write about policy and politics. Um, well, what you have to measure it up against is, you know, a handful of, we, the Phoenix jokingly calls them, you know, geeky politicos, um, against the billion dollars plus that the um, that Karl Rove and his conservative businessmen friends uh, have raised. So it's, you know, it's guys, men and women with keyboards against the, the, the fat cats with over a billion dollars to spend. Well, it's a little bit more complicated, as, as Bernstein has said, because a lot of these people are way left of President Obama. So there's some issues there. Well, President Obama a year ago was when his name came up was actually booed. Mm. Um, Yeah, but a year's a lot of time and uh, it's no longer um, an abstraction. It's Obama versus Romney. As we all know, Romney won the, clinched the nomination with his win in Texas. So while many of these people are to the left of Obama, they're, uh, if they're to the left of Obama, they're way to the left of Mitt Romney. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I frankly think a little too much has been made of that. Um, I would be more worried not about the Netroots people, but college students, young people. I, I think the fact that those groups don't have fire in their belly and frankly, what the party, what Obama supporters are hoping, uh, that the, the net roots bloggers will be able to mobilize younger, progressive, or ideologically driven voters. Should we take anything, uh, John, from the fact that they're in Providence? They've usually sort of been in a kind of lefty town in the Midwest. Uh, so this is unusual. <laughs> Anybody? I, I'm just curious. I know nothing about why they're in Providence. I, I actually, yeah, it's a nice town. I'm glad. I'm glad they're actually meeting instead of just being behind a computer. Because well, I think that's part no, they of did. They, it, so they've yeah. met in. They've met yeah. in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it's. I think the question is why aren't they meeting in Boston? And the answer is is because uh, the Providence Visitor and Convention Business uh, mm. Bureau went out and did a heck of a job of selling them mm-hmm. on on coming there. 
So it's a, it's an economic story as well. It is it is yeah. an economic, and it's a real feather in Providence's cap that they were able to to get this group of opinion makers there. And <laughs> they usually draw some you know news attention, so that means the city will get some attention along the yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that plus travel and leisure, having just named the best burger in Providence, should bring a lot of attention. Right. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Who? Yeah, uh, one twenty one and Harry's Bar and Burger were two places they cited. Huh. But anyway, I'm I'm digressing. Uh, what I found also interesting in this piece, and maybe as uh, Seth and John, I don't mm-hmm. know, you already knew about it. There's a uh, an opposite ideological organization called Right Online, which I had not heard about. I'd heard about Netroots before, but they apparently meet or they're meeting a week later after Netroots. This is they're coalescing all of the the bloggers, the writers, their opinion makers online who are obviously right mm-hmm. of uh, net roots. Not aware of that. Were, yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard of that either. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is, is, is so under the radar and it's like so much of what's going on with power in, in the internet. And, I, you know, when we talk about grassroots, I'm seeing it so much with people, you know, really scaring the, the mainstream politicians when they get together and and you know converge on the internet <laughs> and yeah. then go after a position and the and people politicians will change their mind they're scared of the internet um, this is power well we'll see so back here um off of cyberspace but uh, on the terra firma really interesting story about one of your the everett state representative stephen oh, yeah. stat smith that's right yeah. uh tell us this story <laughs> Well, uh, don't ask me what stat means. I've thought I've tried to find that out for many years. I don't know why his nickname is stat. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, what we found out was um, uh, the, a couple of weeks ago, the fire department was called for a mundane thing, a smoke detector or something. And they went in and they found 12 illegal apartments in, in a 12-unit building. So there are 24 apartments, 12 of them illegal. Um, they later found out it was owned by the Everett State Representative, Steve Stat-Smith. And uh, there were no permits. They couldn't find them. No approvals for these apartments. Uh, no parking. Uh, nothing was up to muster. And, and you know, it was. Uh, it, it immediately, uh, you know, got some traction. People were, were upset. The city was very upset. Revere Fire Chief was very upset. It put a lot of people in harm's way if there were a fire. I mean, it was a fire trap. And uh, you know, the the one little funny anecdote was that he didn't have carbon monoxide detectors. Said he didn't know about that. Yet he was in the in the legislature when that bill was approved and probably so voted, voted on it. That's <laughs> crazy. Uh, and, but the big yeah. thing is they fought and fought with him to try to make some emergency repairs, and he keeps saying, "Oh, I'll do it, I'll do it," and he's just not doing it. So that's it's an ongoing battle um, in that one, and, and one you wouldn't expect from a lawmaker. Uh, but do you think his constituents will know this? No, no, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, well, we, that's a good point. You know, the voters, mm-hmm. we as voters have to take responsibility for the people we elect to these positions. And I'm mm-hmm. willing to bet that this guy gets reelected. Oh, probably, yeah. I mean, he's popular. He's popular, and, and this is outside of his, his um, yeah. representative area. We had, uh, well, that's interesting, too, do it outside your district. I yeah. mean, we had Diane Wilkerson <laughs> as our <laughs> senator for a yeah. long time, and she was forgiven for a lot of things because she was on the right side of a lot of things. She was very popular, but she, you know, she got away with a lot of things for a long time. I, it is a remarkable what you can get reelected, uh, uh, you know, for at the local level. But these are, uh, the, the fire chief said, this is a lawmaker who is a lawbreaker. Mm-hmm. They're every single, uh, requirement for the, for a safe apartment has been broken here Pretty in much. his apartments. This yeah. is not one thing where you could maybe say, I forgot, or I don't mm-hmm. want to do it or whatever. This mm-hmm. is like everything. Basically, no yeah. No approvals, I mean, no permits. I'm reading yeah. your piece. Yeah. No permits, nothing up to muster. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the only good thing about it is they were somewhat clean. <laughs> when they left oh, great. No bad bugs? No. Oh, no. oh that looks no, great. But, uh, it's city code. It's not state law. How yeah. can a state rep know anything about it? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, if that's not enough in your same area, we got to just talk about this Chelsea Street Bridge opening. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, these trains, these proposed trains sure. coming down with the ethanol. But, yeah. okay, tell us about the Chelsea Street Bridge. Well, it is related to these trains yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a way. Uh, the bridge is, is, a, is a monumental achievement in engineering and such. It's one of the first, a vertical lift bridge. And that means that the actual road you drive on goes up and down. And there needed to be a new bridge there. It's, it's been, the one that was there was terrible. Um, so what they did is they replaced it with this, uh, you know, I think it was a $125 million bridge and a $200 million project when they start digging out all the mud under the bridge so that these bigger ships can get into the oil companies. 
If you just take a look from the bridge down, who benefits? It's only two large oil companies. Uh, the, the road was closed for nearly a year, a very major road. Mm. Um, residents were, were, you know, it was, it was such a hassle, believe me. It was a hassle for me, you know, so I can't imagine what people living on either side had to deal with. Um, and, and, and in the end, you know, uh, it's a lot of applause. People, you know, the elected officials think it's the greatest thing. But you have to wonder, do we really need $200 million bridge there? Uh, they could have chose a project that was much smaller um, and, and got the job done. But it wouldn't have been as good for the oil companies. So uh, you've got to wonder who, who, uh, who's benefiting. And, uh, you know, Michael Capuano, who was chief person, a congressman, in bringing this in an earmark um, in a previous budget, said, you know, this isn't a, a neighborhood project. This isn't about the neighborhood. Mm. It won't help the neighborhood. It will help business, and that's what we're here to do, help business. And I mean, there's no jobs that will be created by Oh, it. I was going to say, did, wasn't there no. some jobs for people who worked on building the bridge? Well, yeah, you yeah. did have some construction jobs, okay. I mean, permanent, permanent yeah. ongoing jobs. I mean, the oil companies aren't hiring anyone new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the ships, I don't, you know, there's more big ships coming in. Maybe that helps. But it also helps the oil companies bring in the ethanol, which the trains we were talking about. They can mm-hmm. bring in and take out more ethanol. And, you know, is that so good for the community? Well, some people are saying, well, we just helped them do it you know, mm. by spending our money on it. Uh, so there's some big questions there. Most people aren't questioning it, but some are. And, and you've got to look at that. And if you look down the river, you can kind of wonder yourself. Hmm. So this is another situation where you had competing interests. And, and mm-hmm. uh, Congressman Michael Capuano was just very upfront about it, that I'm, I'm not addressing mm-hmm. uh, yeah. One set of interests, I'm addressing another. Yeah, economic yeah. development. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, just to play devil's advocate, too, wouldn't we be better off building the bridge bigger so that it could accommodate things in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know enough about the situation. I have a firm opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, as focused as we all are on jobs for the immediate moment, this might be a good thing because it's part of an infrastructure that would last hopefully 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what public input was like. It sounds like perhaps people could have mm-hmm. weighed in a little more than they got a chance to. Yeah, I don't know that there, was, there wasn't a lot of questioning of it. It was like, uh, we need a new bridge, we need a new bridge. Uh, it wasn't a lot of talk about what kind of bridge. Um, in the end, I think it was the oil companies probably who dictated that for, for good or bad. Um, I know they were involved in a lot of the planning and stuff. Um, uh, will it help us get cheaper gas, cheaper heating oil? Uh, there was a press release from the Army Corps of Engineers that said, maybe. <laughs> so maybe we will. Well, that remains to be seen. Well, I think Campuano's popularity is such that even you know, if he's just right up front with what he's doing, sure. I think he can get away with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, not yeah. get away with, but you know what no, I mean. He's yeah. Move yeah. stuff forward. Yeah. And he believes in this project. He believes it's the right thing to do, definitely. All right. Uh, uh, none of you have written about this yet. I'm sure you will be next uh, week. But before we close out, I just wanted to get your take on the upcoming maybe a little bit contentious, Massachusetts Democratic Convention. Hmm. (laughs) I'll be interested to see what the Native American vote is. I I have a hard time. Listen, I'm all for everyone running. Um, We'll see what the the people at the convention do. I hope Elizabeth Warren's the only person on the ballot because I'd like to see a nice clean shot. a, a nice one-on-one race um, and, and focus the energy between Warren and Brown. However, if she's not, it's hardly the end of the earth. It might even help tune up the campaign, make it, uh, the, the, the campaign could use some shadow boxing, I think. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think we're, uh, I'm not sure it's going to make much difference one way or the other. Hmm. Well, usually these things are, sometimes these things are rubber stamps, but this has a little energy around it. Mm. Oh, no, I, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. But I, I can see, I guess what I'm saying is I can see a plus in that this would be good for the Warren campaign to be tested. Um, but if she's the only one on the ballot, I don't think it's the end of the earth. It's, it's, it's not as if Warren, who, and by the way, let me say, I do not think she's handled herself well the last couple of weeks. But it's not as if Warren isn't clearly the best qualified person to take on um, Scott Brown, um, but she's got to tune up her game before she does. Um, has 
uh, Chelsea warmed up to Elizabeth Warren? I know she's been spending a fair amount of time there. Yeah, yeah, she is popular there. I mean, that's, Chelsea's uh, got a lot of advocates, a lot of nonprofit organizations, and, and you know, she speaks to them and they respond. She's very popular there. Now, you know, in some of the other places like East Boston and, and Revere and certainly Winthrop and um, places like that, you know, people are kind of backing away just to see what might happen this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hmm. what, what she says at the convention um, you know, how she explains the things she hasn't explained is, is going to maybe dictate a, a whether that support um, backs further off or, or comes closer. Um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting. Speaking of the convention, I, a, a local official I saw just today, I asked him, he said he was going. I said, well, what do you think it'll be? He said, probably 14 hours of boredom and 30 minutes of something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's maybe what they can expect. <laughs> okay, lightning round, yes or no. Is the Native American kerfuffle, uh, whether she speaks about it or not this weekend, over? Totally up to her. Totally up to how she handles it. I say uh, no, not over. Okay, She's flubbing John bad. Rich. Okay. Yeah. What do you say, Seth? Davis? No, not over. Okay. Diminished, but not over. All right. Well, there you have it. We'll have to be keeping an eye on what happens because mm-hmm. I guess that 30 minutes will determine everything yes. <laughs> of excitement. <laughs> We've been talking local news with John Roosh, editor of the Jamaica Plain Gazette, Peter Katz is executive editor of the Boston Phoenix, and Seth Daniel, senior reporter of the Independent News Group, which includes the Revere Journal. Thanks to all of you. Thanks Thank you. Us. Up next, we talk through the latest pop culture headlines with our analysts, Thomas Connolly and Rachel Rubin. You're listening to WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is on WGBH thanks to you and UMass Memorial Healthcare and its gynecologic surgeons, providing minimally invasive and robotic techniques for cancer, fibroids, infertility, and more. You can ask questions online at umassmemorial.org slash gynesurgery. And Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. GTlaw.com. And the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, $10, or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. The world comes at you fast. On air, online, on your phone, there's an awful lot of information to process. And let's face it, your time is valuable. I'm Melissa Block. At All Things Considered, we cut through the clutter and separate the facts from the fluff. All Things Considered from NPR News. On the clock, every day. This afternoon at 4 here on 89.7 WGBH. If you're looking for something that's cool and sweet and sprinkled with fun, the WGBH Fun Fest is all that with a cherry on top. Saturday, July 14th at WGBH in Brighton. It's a day hand-packed with ice-creamy goodness. Mix it up with PBS Kids characters, swirl in some rides, games, music, and more. It's enough to make you melt. Tickets will sell out, and that's a sure bet, so don't waffle. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash funfest while you still cone. Uh, sorry, can. Grandpa, he threw the first ball out at Fenway Park. The very first First ball out. Ever. Ever. 100 years of legend and history of Fenway Park. Fridays on WGBH's Morning Edition. It's Ragtime, a view of the week's pop culture happenings. It's an examination of the salacious, the ridiculous, and everything in between. But this being public radio, we'll conduct our review with the help of some highbrow analysts, our pointy-head poobahs of pop culture, Rachel Rubin and Thomas Connolly. Rachel Rubin is the chair of the Department of American Studies at UMass Boston, and Thomas Connolly is a professor of English at Suffolk University. Welcome back, you two. Hello again. Well, this week, uh, Bob Dylan visited the White House on Tuesday to receive the Medal of Freedom. Um, 
Gosh, he released his first album in 1962. By all accounts, President Obama was very much infatuated. Anyway, here's a little bit of Bob Dylan's Absolutely Sweet Marie. Well, your railroad gauge, you know I just can't jump it. Sometimes it gets so hard, you see. I just sitting here beating on my trumpet with all these promises you left for me. But where are you tonight, sweet Marie? Well, Rachel, are you surprised that President Obama was just so thrilled to have Bob Dylan in the White House? I'm not surprised that he was thrilled. Um, and I, I'm surprised if Dylan was thrilled, actually. Oh. I mean, that is the thing I want to watch and see how he resists this the way he has always, for better and for worse, resisted any box anybody has tried to put him in. You know, he, he says, I won't be the... Sp- he didn't. He hated being called the spokesperson of his generation. He he was Christian. He, be, he was Jewish. He's been left wing. He's been right wing. You know, he he really doesn't like to sort of be fixed like that. So I want to see how he'll respond in the in the days to come if people really try to sort of pin something on him because of this. He seemed to be enjoying it, even though I mean he was his usual Bob Dylan he's self. Very, <laughs> Tom, Tom. He's very grouchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he really. Um, is the antithesis of anything established, so it would seem. But let's face it, he's been around so long, he can't help it. No matter what he does, by this point, he's an institution, and he's going to have the president put the medal around his his neck. Um, It's interesting. I was thinking about Pete Seeger, who got one of these a few years Mm. ago, and, of course, always this, the legendary confrontation they had when, you know, Bob Dylan went electric. That's been debunked thoroughly. But um, (laughs) for... Dylan still, at this point in his career, to act as though he's this, you know, ultra-rebel and he's not going to reach out. He's not going to allow normal fans to acknowledge him. He's not going to have any part of sort of normal public life is shows that he, he that that is the ultimate integrity that he's got that he, he just he will not give in but he will accept the award so maybe it is an ultimate <laughs> well he was there with uh, Madeline Albright yeah. who got one and also the former University of Tennessee women's basketball head coach Pat Summit yeah. who is just beloved um, and John Glenn former astronaut yeah. so you know that's pretty heady company yeah. to be in I I think I would well, of course, I'm not Bob Dylan, but I think I would be <laughs> enjoying if I had, that. If I got to give an, uh, an award to Bob Dylan, I would geek out much more than Obama did. I just want to say that. Oh, okay. Well, he, he pretty much, they, they were they were teasing him about yeah. it. <laughs> Lifetime is developing a new series, and it's not kind of like in their wheelhouse. Uh, this is one developed uh, on the character Clarice, who many people may remember, Clarice Starling, who was a character in The Silence of the Lambs. This is what earned Jodie Foster. An Academy Award. Here's a clip from classic Hannibal Lecter, her opponent in Silence of the Lambs. And in this scene, he's exhuming Clarice's past. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a robe. A wild scrub hustling a robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? I have to say that I thought that Jodie Foster inhabited this character, Tom, so I'm trying to figure out what, how would they proceed to develop her in a series. Well, also, and Julianne Moore played her in the, the second one. Uh-huh. I was interested... When I first saw the headline, I, I'm sure a lot of people assumed it's going to be yet another retread of Hannibal Lecter. But I think that the Clarice character has been sort of given short shrift mm. in our obsession with the Hannibal character. And there is a lot going on with her. I mean, the, the Sons of the Lambs, after all, was really about her childhood experiences and her childhood trauma. So I think there is something for the writers to do with her. Also... Uh, the, the controversial nature of the FBI and then the late 20th century and even today and her, the, the, the sexism that is sort of fronted in, in the first film. 
I, I think that there are a lot of there's a lot of possibility for a character to go at loggerheads with their superiors and also with her, wrestle with her own demons. Well, that's a good point, Rachel. Yeah, I mean the the part you know. First of all, I just want to say the most delightful thing I've ever seen about Silence of the Lambs is a is an academic who, who referred to the movie as horror movie for grad students, <laughs> which it sort of is. But um, you know, the Clarice the Clarice character is very interesting in in that clip, very plain. That I think that the main story there is about class, mm. and he has seen to you know he's seen he, to her background like where she's going to be vulnerable and is sort of mocking her right for being one generation away from poor white trash, which is still, you know, sometimes an allowable um, insult. And I would be very interested to see how um, how they excavate that. I hope that they maintain that and excavate it, because sometimes right. what they do is just eliminate that. Yeah, and all start of a sudden, eliminate the working yeah. class you know, story, yeah. but exactly. that is the story. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, that, that would make it interesting. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Uh, well, uh, speaking of class, at one point, Justin Bieber, he of worldwide fame now, was just a little middle-class boy living in the Midwest, and now he's huge. So it made it all the more interesting to hear, and he's got a very sweet reputation that he had a big fight with the paparazzi, not seeming to follow fall in his uh, in his reputation, but there it was. Uh, anyway, for people who are not aware of Justin Bieber, I guess he's 18 now, maybe just turned 18, here is a clip from Die In Your Arms. This is Justin Bieber. So there's Justin Bieber. I think of him. He's not. He's moving away from bubblegum pop, but still, he's very sweet. So you never think of him. He's he's denied this, by the way, uh, saying he did not, you know, strike any paparazzi. Uh, but others, uh, the, the original story was that he was walking with Selena Gomez, his girlfriend, and they sort of came at him in a way that he didn't think was safe for her. But well, th- this has been going on. Yeah. For decades, yeah. I mean, Frank Sinatra in the '40s, you know, was a, was one of the first things that had to be hushed up about him was that he, you know, really tore a, a photographer apart. Um, we and we remember, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis's uh, constant f- f- fights with Ron Galella, who made a career out of it. What's interesting about this is, you know, Justin Bieber, 18 years old, is such a sweet, as you were saying, Kelly, sweet-faced boy. Mm. It's hard to imagine him growling and clocking a photographer. But I think it, it sums up how angry celebrities are, and by extension even his fans are, mm. that he can't walk down the street. We're, we're really getting to a point where stories like this are, are almost every other day or almost every day where celebrities are acting out against this. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Halle Berry, who's taking this to the White House. Yeah, that's um, true. I, I think this is, we've entered a new chapter in paparazzi versus the stars and i think it's going to get a lot uglier well don't you think also because of what happened with uh diana princess diana with that paparazzi going beyond invading personal space leading to her death um i think everybody agrees with that 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 now stars have to be concern when people are encroaching on their personal space, uh, Rachel. Oh, that's definitely there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the new tradition of shooting what they, what do they call it, upskirt of, you know, young women celebrities. But I think there is possibly another story here altogether. Mm. And that is that um, he punched out a photographer to punch out a photographer. In other words, and you know, particularly since he was protecting, you know, it reminded me most, most of all when Sean Penn punched a photographer because mm. the photographer supposedly got too close to Madonna when they were married. Mm. But um, Justin Bieber, we've been saying here, he's sweet, he's sweet, he's sweet, he's young. We know that that kind of bubblegum pop star has to find a way to stop being that. He's 18 now. He can't be. Now, we saw Britney Spears, for example, go from innocence to sort of hypersexed on purpose as a way for her to try to transfer. And Miley Cyrus. And Miley Cyrus into like Mm. a new adult way of Mm. being that isn't so sexually safe. And it really, the thing that makes me really sad about this isn't so much about personal space, but but how that's how you prove you're a man and not a boy is mm. through an act of violence and an act of sort of, you know, defense of the woman, you know. And I, I hope that he can find another way um, to move into an adult role that isn't, um, you know, that isn't like that. Mm. It's also interesting yeah. that he cut his hair. Yeah. And now I'm sort of an anti-Samson 
without the longer hair. He's got shorter hair, but he's now he's got to assert himself in the sort of most pathetic macho way. And, you know, I tell you, uh, Tom, he did that, and the fans were like, nah, don't cut the hair, don't cut the hair. And he said, no, I'm, you know... I've moved away from this hair, dude. Yeah. You got to go with me. Yeah. I'm cutting the hair. <laughs> the hair had to go. I yeah, now like the poor guy's recovering from a concussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also liked the hair, but mm. <laughs> well, here's somebody who's not really worried about his reputation. That's John Waters. <laughs> He's got a new <laughs> uh, a new book coming out, possibly chronicling his hitchhiking journey. Uh, the book might be called Carsick. Uh, people mm-hmm. may know John Waters because he's done some of the. Uh, edgy films, as you would say, uh, Rachel. But, but what do you think about this? He said it allowed him to get off the beaten track and and really see the country. I think it's wonderful. I mean, a couple of things that I can't wait to see the book or whatever else he does with it. Um, and there have been you know, really important hitchhiking scenes in a lot of his movies, so it seems to be something that he's very interested in, including in um, Mondo Trasho, where there's a naked hitchhiking scene. You know, couldn't very well be more John Waters. And in fact, the story on that is he didn't have a permit to film nudity. Um, cops came. They took off in the car. Um, the people in the car. He got caught, but not the people in the car which included Divine and Waters always saying what does it say that the police couldn't find a 300 pound drag queen a naked man in a red convertible (laughs) they failed to do that but what's lovely about him working on this hitchhiking book is he has been very clear and outspoken about his own privilege that allows him to do this you know he has the time he has the flexibility of schedule he's a man you know so it makes it relatively safe for him so I, I just think as always is clear-sighted and wonderful, and I want to see what the book is. What do you think about the... Well, it's interesting. What he said was the inspiration for this was his life had become so scheduled mm. that he felt he didn't have any life anymore, and he just wanted to you know, clear his schedule and clear his head and just you know, get across the country. Um, it's also interesting, just thinking in the ever since the automobile's been around, the idea of what hitchhiking is. I mean, you think of the famous scene in It Happened One Night with uh, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable hitching and what it means to be able to hitchhike. And, you know, her thinking about what Rachel just said about Waters being a man and able to do this, but it's Claudette Colbert flaunting her leg that gets on the ride and humiliates Clark Gable, who, you know, claims to be this, you know, macho expert about hitchhiking. Hitchhiking, you know, being on the road is often given too much seriousness. The thing I like about Waters' take on this is it was fun. It was an inv- uh, a fun adventure, a way to meet people and experience America in a completely non-judgmental way. And it seems as though he had got a lot of insights about it, met some interesting musicians and lots of other people, and didn't get arrested. <laughs> yeah. Not this time. Uh, <laughs> we should point out that he uh, is giving credit to a 20-year-old Maryland councilman who drove him through several legs of the trip. Um, and he, as a result, in exchange, John Waters gave him a key to his San Francisco apartment or house and a personal tour of the city, which is pretty interesting. So not only is he traveling and hitchhiking in this way and getting away from his schedule and doing something he said was Zen-like, but he's also experiencing it through the eyes of the next generation mm-hmm. of one uh, can think about he it in that way. He is an elder. He's a wise elder <laughs> yeah. learning yeah. from the young people. Yeah. He it's loves strange everybody. To think of him. <laughs> so that's that interesting. So. <laughs> I should also note there's a gentleman uh, on Martha's Vineyard who uh, wrote a little book uh, about hitchhiking around Martha's Vineyard and the adventures that he had meeting so many interesting people who would just pick him up, uh, including Larry David, oh. <laughs> the actor. <laughs> uh, and in fact, the name of the book is Hitchhiking with Larry David. Huh. <laughs> so anyway, so that's uh, Hitchhiking is Back, I guess. Uh, moving on, Lee Daniels, who, if you're thinking I've heard that name before, he's a director and best known at this point for the film Precious, uh, which starred uh, Monique and a uh, young woman, Gabrielle Sidibe, who's gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, he just premiered his new movie called The Paper Boy, which is based on a 1995 novel, uh, at Cannes. Or is it can? I'm not never sure. But anyway, uh, here is a clip from Lee Daniels' new film, The Paperboy. And on the other side, we'll talk about what he has to say about it. There she is. Oh, baby. Oh, I say. Good morning, Miss Blast. Look at Daisy May. Good morning. You look just fine. Hope he likes it. <laughs> Would you mind putting up the windows? It's gonna mess my hair. Are you serious? I'm sweating like a pregnant nun back here. 
Unbelievable. All right. Well, the woman with the very good Southern accent, I can say that as a Southerner, is <laughs> Nicole Kidman, believe it or not. Uh, the uh, guy with the most of the dialogue is David Ayolowo. He's African, and I'm messing up his last name. But anyway, he's uh, somewhat known. It also The movie also stars Matthew McConaughey. And it's about a murder in a small town uh, in Florida. And what uh, Daniels decided to do was to expand the role of some of the minor black characters and cast uh, some of the other white characters in uh, in a different way than they might have been portrayed in the book. And he talked about the reason that he wanted to do that and said that it was important to hear some stories that might have seemed to be minor in the book, but he wanted to expand them on the screen. Getting a lot of attention for it. Apparently the, the film was very well received at the film festival. Yeah, this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. He's taken what was pretty much a conventional murder mystery novel and added many more layers of interest, not just because of contemporary problems in Florida, uh, but uh, adding the, the changing the race of some of the characters and adding more uh, African-American characters makes this a, a very challenging film and consistent with the rest of his work. I mean, it's, it's, it's not... Some people have accused him of, of you know, this being a stunt or it's a, a, a play to get more work for African-American actors. There's much more going on here with, you know... And it's related to what he's done in, in, in his other films to really get people thinking about problems in our society and also, you know, tell a great story. Rachel, what do you think? I'm going to have to wait and see. I mean, I've read some pretty intense criticism mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, if you look at the sort of Rotten Tomatoes types indices, it's not it's not doing that well. Um, but that, you know, it'll be I, I wish he had more of a sense of humor. I will say that. I feel like he could sort of he could work some of the John Waters um, territory that said that said the race um, switching um, can work really well in casting. I'm thinking of the the role Morgan Freeman played in the Shawshank Redemption. Um, mm-hmm. He it, it, in Stephen King's source novel, that character was white. And in the movie, you know, somebody asks Morgan Freeman's character, why do they call you red? And he says, I don't know, I guess it must be because I'm Irish, which was exactly <laughs> what was in the book. <laughs> and for having Morgan Freeman say that, it's really deep because, you know, he probably is Irish, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of the way the, 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 calcul- the racial calculus works in the United States. So, you know, I'm hoping that, um, that Lee Daniels found some stuff, you know, to say about it, too. All right. Well, that wraps up another edition of Ragtime, a review of this week's pop culture news with Professor Rachel Rubin and Professor Thomas Connolly. Thank you both so much. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's program was engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzico. We're a production of WGBH Boston Public Radio.